Dreamers are not actually all too common in Scripture. Maybe that is or is not a surprising thing for you to hear. Dreams are only explicitly mentioned around 20 times in the Bible. And of those, there's really just a handful of characters that experience dreams and where it's explicitly named. Some of them are some of the sort of the Mount Rushmore of Scripture, you might say, right? Abraham, his grandson Jacob, uh, Joseph, the one with the Technicolor dream coat, the, the other Joseph, you know, the earthly dad of Jesus. Um, dreams are different than visions. Visions are something that you, you experience. It's God breaking into your, your waking world, the sunlit world, but dreams are, are different. It's when people are asleep, frequently alone, in the dark, in isolation, and, and something otherworldly is revealed to them. What happens with these dreams and, and how we might connect those dreams to the dreams we hear today, dreams from dreamers like Danielle, who we heard from just a moment ago. You might not at first think that Danielle's story and Jacob's story from Genesis are that closely linked. But as we listen to Danielle's story of growing up in a, a traumatic and traumatizing home with a broken and breaking family, who is left wondering what the purpose of life even is, and yet somehow out of that finds hope, finds courage, finds the willingness not to just exist but to flourish so that others might as well. Hmm. I wonder if Danielle and Jacob have more in common than we first think. Today, our scriptures, we begin this, this journey through the season of pride, this month of June, we're going to focus on the book of Genesis, beginning in chapter 25, verse 25, we're introduced to the origin story. Before we can hear Jacob's dreams, we have to first understand where he comes from. So uh, in chapter 25, verse 25 is where we're going to start. Before we read that, though, um, if, if this is your first time in church or first time picking up a Bible, I don't want to assume that we know anything. So, so Abraham of the father Abraham and his many sons acclaim, right? Um, that Abraham is, is promised by God uh, through a dream of his own, in fact, that, that, that God is going to allow his family to flourish and multiply as numerous as the stars in the heavens. And so Abraham has a son named Isaac, and then Isaac has a son named Jacob that we're about to meet. Although Jacob does not come alone, he comes with a twin brother named Esau. It says this, she discovered that she had had twins. This is referring to Jacob's mother, Rebecca. The first came out red all over, clothed with hair. He was a very hairy infant. And she named him Esau. Immediately after, his brother came out gripping Esau's heel, and she named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. I think Al Pacino's like 81, and he's about to have a kid. When the young men grew up, Esau became an outdoorsman, it says, who knew how to hunt. Mm, tough, manly man. And Jacob became a quiet man who stayed at home. Isaac, the father, loved Esau because he enjoyed eating game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Let's pause here for a moment. 
Jacob and, and Esau. Now, as I tell Jacob's story, know that I am skipping the stone across the surface today because his story takes up chapters upon chapters, so you're going to have to trust your pastor to paraphrase at times. Um, what happens next is that Esau and Jacob's characters are revealed through this kind of comedic um, uh, story about Jacob essentially not stealing so much as just very cunningly uh, weaseling the birthright away from, ja or from his brother Esau. Esau comes in from hunting and he's, and he's famished and he sees Jacob making a big pot of red lentil stew. And so we all know what comes next, of course. He sells his birthright for a bowl of red lentil stew, right? Um, it, it, it says that he says, I want to eat that red stuff. Like, literally, that's what the Hebrew says, right? Like, like, Esau is almost a caricature of himself in this story. And Jacob says, fine, give me the birthright if you want some. He goes, okay, fine, who cares? I'm going to die one day anyways. I don't need a birthright. And he takes the red lentil stew and eats up, and suddenly Jacob's got the birthright. How about that? You know, one point holding onto the heel, and now he's the first one out. So... This also tells us something about who they are as people, Esau being this very brash, very uh, short-sighted, very unconcerned with family legacy kind of young man, and Jacob being this quieter, this meeker and milder, but crafty and morally gray and even opportunistic younger brother, just slightly younger, though I'm sure Esau reminded him frequently. And then in Genesis 27, a couple chapters later, there's the, there's the famous theft of the blessing. Now, some of you may know this story, some of you may not. So, so what happens is Isaac, the father, he's growing much older now, and his eyesight has left him. And so he wants to offer, he knows that he's close to death, he wants to offer a final blessing to Esau, his firstborn. So he says, Esau, go out and hunt that game that I love so much and make me my favorite meal. And Rebecca overhears this. Esau runs off into the wilderness, and Rebecca overhears this request, and she says, Jacob, come here, come here, come here. And she convinces him to basically lie to his father. She says, go and get two goats, young goats, and I want you to make an even better meal. We're going to top chef this bad boy. And, um, <laughs> and then I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put some goat hide on you uh, to make you feel like your brother. Which, quick aside, Genesis is brutal to Esau, by the way. G Genesis is like, he's literally a goat man. Like, that's, I can't imagine that was true, but... Anyways, that's what he does. He puts on this hide of a goat, and he walks up, and he's carrying this, this home-cooked young goat meal. And, of course, Isaac, at first, he, his eyes don't work, but his ears do. And he's like, ah, is that really you, Esau? You sound like Jacob. And, and Jacob's like, no, no, it's totally me. It's totally me, your son Esau. Here, feel my goat arms. Um, and so he ends up getting this blessing out of Isaac. No matter how suspicious Isaac is, he ends up offering this blessing. And, and when Esau returns, Esau is understandably furious, right? Because now not only has he tricked him out of his birthright, he's now just outright stolen from his dying father this last blessing. And so Esau says, as soon as I'm done grieving the death of my father, I'm going to kill you. That's what he says. I, and he's letting everybody know this. And so Rebecca. Jacob's mom says, you've got to get out of here. Esau is not going to let you live. You need to run to your uncle Laban's house, and then after some time, hopefully he'll forget. Yeah, like he's going to forget. But that's what she says. Run to your uncle Laban's house, and hopefully he'll forget. This is the story of Jacob. This is how it begins. What a dream of a family. Am I right? Now, I know, I know, especially on this day of all days, that not everybody in this space has an origin of, or a family of origin that is a blessing, right? 
I love the story of, of Jacob and Esau in part because it's so honest about how our families actually can be, both blessing and broken, right? Uh, on the one hand, he's, he's got a father who blesses him but also doesn't really want to, and, and his father also clearly favors his brother, and that's got to mess him up. He's got a mother who, yes, encourages him and supports him and, and stays with him in the home but also manipulates him into to deceiving his father on his deathbed. His last memory is of lying to his dad. He's got a twin brother who is nothing like him, even though they're twins, and wants nothing to do with him other than to kill him. This is the family that Jacob comes out of. Some of us, when we think about our family of origin, we think about nothing but rainbows and sunshine, and it's like the best thing in the world. And some of us haven't spoken to our family of origin in what feels like generations. And maybe, quite frankly, we've already grieved their passing, whether or not they're still here. I think most families are probably somewhere in the middle of that, where they are both this blessing and breaking thing. Reagan and I kind of halfway joke, and we're also very serious that, you know, we're in to pay for at least the first year of adult therapy for our kids, right? They they got two pastors for parents. They're going to need some time on a couch, right? Um, But it's true. I mean, even with the best of intentions, like the best parents still royally screw up their kids, right? In fact, so frequently I just try to say, I'm trying not to screw up a really good thing. Um, When I see Jacob's family of origin, when I see the way that his family begins, and I see the raw honesty that Scripture offers, and I think about the the way that I know Jacob's story is going, where he's going to go and build a family of his own, and it's also going to be a broken mess, but also a blessing. It makes me consider the kinds of families that I am helping to foster here on this earth, both the family that lives in my house, the family that lives in my church, the family that lives in my community, in my larger world. All of us are fostering families, whether we are conscious of that or not. And the question, I think, becomes how can we lean into fostering a family that blesses rather than a family that breaks? Because none of us enjoy feeling broken by our families. And it's not because necessarily every family designs themselves to break, but I do think it's important to walk through this life being conscious of the fact that that family can look so many different ways, and it can take so many different forms, and whether we like it or not, whether we're conscious or not, we are forming and fostering families. How is God helping us to foster families that are a blessing to us and to others, where people can flourish and feel supported and feel seen? Families have the power to bless and to break, my friends, and how are we creating families that lean into blessing? I don't know that I can answer that question for you, but I think the Holy Spirit might have something to say on the subject. So maybe that's a question you take to God in prayer this week. So Jacob's story continues with his first uh, dream. We're going to see the the first dream appear, the first of two. It comes to us in chapter 28, beginning in verse 10. So Jacob has run off to his uncle Laban's house. He's going back to sort of the old country, so to speak. Uh, that's where Laban lives in this land that we learn is called Haran. Jacob left Beersheba, it says, and set out for Haran. He reached a certain place and spent the night there. And when the sun had set, he took one of the stones at that place and put it near his head. Then he lay down there. He dreamed and saw a raised staircase its foundation on earth and its top touching the sky, and God's messengers were ascending and descending on it. And suddenly the Lord was standing on it saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will become like the dust of the earth. You will spread out to the west, east, north, and south. Every family of earth will be blessed because of you and your descendants. This 
part of the dream is very, almost verbatim reminiscent of the, uh, the promise and covenant that Abraham receives from God. But now we get to hear for Jacob specifically, I am with you now, God says. I will protect you everywhere you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done everything that I have promised you. When Jacob woke from his sleep, he thought to himself, the Lord is definitely in this place, but I didn't know it. He was terrified and thought, this sacred place is awesome. It's none other than, the, than God's house and the entrance to heaven. So in addition to inspiring the famous Led Zeppelin song, this scene, the stairway to heaven, is the first of Jacob's two dreams that he has. The, the next one will come in about 14 years. It, it connects him to the promise, like I said, made to his grandfather and his own father, and it's now confirmed to be his dream as well. And let's not miss the very obvious reality that his dream is rooted in family. This very thing that has just caused him so much pain, so much grief, that he can't even go back to, wonders if he ever will. That's the dream that God chooses to give him. Thanks, God, so much for that. That's the thing I was trying to forget. Now you're telling me that's my life's work? Yikes. Has anybody ever received a dream from God that you thought, nah, I'm good, right? Um, that can be an appropriate first response. But I love this line, the Lord, this is uh, Jacob talking, the Lord is definitely in this place, but I did not know it. Have you ever said that to yourself in retrospect, in hindsight? One of our Sunday school classes was talking about that this morning, in fact, actually. The Lord is in this place, and I simply did not know it. I mean, Jacob has to be aware of who he is in this moment. He has to be aware of the pain that he's caused his own father and his brother he has to be aware that he, has that he has chosen to do something so unrighteous. You might even wonder if it's unforgivable. And, and he knows that he's in this isolated place, this Beersheba place. He's not made it to his uncle's house, yet he is alone. The sun has set. It is dark. It is quiet. It was frightening. It is isolated. It is deeply sad. And that's the place that he says, this is where heaven and earth meet for me, this is where I see God showing up in my life. It's here on the run, alone, in the dark, at his lowest, that God's presence draws near and reveals who Jacob is becoming. Have you ever had a moment like that where you thought everything has grown dark, I am all alone, everything is over, I don't know what I'm going to do? And right then, wouldn't you know it, the stairway to heaven shows up. And God says, I'm not going to fix it for you in this moment. I'm not going to even tell you every step along the way. What I am going to tell you is it's going to get better, and it's going to take work, and I'll be with you every step of the way. Just wait to see who you become. Wow. No wonder Jacob is moved. No wonder he says, this place is awesome. And maybe you're yearning for an experience like that in your life. I can't ring up God or the Holy Spirit and say, hey, I need you to make it out to 2809, you know, Rich Forest, whatever. You know, yeah, it doesn't work that way. A lot of times these moments only come in hindsight. What I can say is if it can happen for Jacob, it can happen for us. And when those holy moments happen, it's important to mark them. I think about Danielle, who we just heard, about, heard from a moment ago. I think Danielle had a moment like Jacob. 
a holy, sacred, awesome moment that was terrifying and wonderful all at the same time. And Danielle recognizes that when you have those moments, it's important to tell that story in a courageous way because someone else needs to hear, it's going to get better, it's going to take work, and I will be with you every step of the way. Amen? That's an important truth, important story for people to hear in this world. Jacob is going to rename this place Bethel, and, and it's, an, it's an honor of the way that God showed up for him in that, in that place. Now, what comes next? What comes next? I'm going to warn y'all. If y'all go and read the story, don't read it with your kids. <laughs> it gets weird, okay? Just full disclosure, we're going we're gonna to understand this story in the context of its cultural time. Amen, church? Okay. So Jacob goes to his uncle Laban's house, right? And while he's heading out there, he sees this big well, and there's this massive stone on top. Water was a limited resource in those days. The way they designed the wells was they'd have this really heavy stone, so all the shepherds at the same time had to lift it off. That way no one could steal water. Well, Jacob's got the power of God within him, so he moves the stone by himself, and some of the people see it, and they're like, oh my goodness, look at him. And he sees... He sees Rachel, this woman Rachel, and he falls madly in love, and he learns that this is Laban's daughter, Rachel. He falls in love with Laban's daughter, his uncle Laban, his daughter. Rachel is his cousin. Ew. This is thousands of years ago, friends. So Laban tells Jacob that he can marry Rachel if and only if Jacob agrees to work for him unpaid for seven years. Seven years. And Jacob says, absolutely. That number seven in the Hebrew Bible, whenever you're reading scripture, that's a complete number. That means like you're going to do a complete amount of work, a total whole amount of work, and then you can have my daughter because I'm treating her like livestock. Again, thousands of years ago, thousands of years, after seven years, Laban honors his word and gives Jacob his wife, and they spend the night together. And then in the morning, Jacob turns over and realizes, whoops, that's not Rachel. That's her big sister, Leah. I married the wrong cousin, right? Um, it's true, friends. Laban offers his older daughter to Jacob. He doesn't know for some reason, realizes in the morning, and then Laban says, no takesies, backsies, but if you do want to re-up and work seven more years, then you can have Rachel. We're going to keep going. So... Clearly, deception runs in the family. Jacob's upset, but he says, you know what? It's worth it. I'm going to do the work. So he does seven more years of work, 200% of the work required so that then he can marry Rachel, which he does, his other first cousin who is sisters with his first wife. And so one of the great patriarchs of Scripture married two sisters who were also his first cousins and would end up fathering children with both of them and with their servants as well. And that, my friends, is a wonderful story to reference during Pride Month when someone tries to make a point about biblical marriage. There you go. <laughs> In case you're wondering, that's uh, Genesis 29. So um, we tend to skip that one a lot of times. Okay, so, but beyond all that, what is the point of this weird 14-year toxic family arranged marriage business, right? Why am I bringing this up? 
If we accept this story on its own terms, which I would encourage us to do, and we allow the obvious modern ethical issues to quiet for a moment, what we can see is a story about Jacob pursuing the dream that God has placed upon his heart by putting in the work, and not just a little bit of work, not even just a full amount of work, but double the full amount of work, seven years twice over. I wonder, are we willing to put in the work for the life or the dreams that we believe God wants for us? See, I think in, in modern 21st century America, a lot of us are happy to dream dreams, but I don't know if you're like me, sometimes putting in that full seven years of work and then putting in that seven full years again, that sounds exhausting, and that's where I come up short so frequently. I wonder, are we willing to double the work when at first it appears to, it appears to not have had the positive effect that we had hoped? That work's going to look different than Jacob's work. By God, I hope it looks different for you, right? Please don't tell me if you feel like God has told you in a dream to marry both of your first cousins, right? Maybe that work looks like therapy to finally deal with the family of origin in a way that allows you to build a better family of choice, Maybe that work looks like the kind of stuff that gives deeper meaning to life and allows people that you love to flourish in a way that they can, that lives on without you. That's the legacy that God has dreamed for Jacob. You know, on this Sunday especially, I cannot help but think about our trans community this morning. I have got friends this morning who no longer know if their child will be able to receive life-saving medical care thanks to our state legislation. I've got friends whose jobs are on the line now that their work on diversity, equity, and inclusion has been banned at public universities. Seven years ago, my friends, our legislature was arguing over bathroom bills, and now we are taking away health care and education. Seven years of labor has not given way to the outcome that we had hoped, so will our hopes be dashed or will we double down? Will our hopes be dashed or will we double down? Seven years, seven years. There's another dream waiting for Jacob on this other side of 14 years. Beginning in verse 10, Jacob has a dream. It says, when the flocks were mating, I looked up and saw in a dream that the male goats that mounted the flock were striped, speckled, and spotted. In the dream, God's messenger said to me, Jacob, and I said, I am here. And he said, look up and watch all the striped and speckled and spotted male goats mounting the flock. I've seen everything that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a sacred pillar and where you made a solemn promise to me. Now get up and leave this country and go back to the land of your relatives." that first dream wasn't hard enough this one might even be tougher see Jacob's built a pretty good life for himself here in Laban's land he's got a couple of wives uh, he's got family he's got children he's got livestock he's got men that work for him he's got really this growing promise that he believes God has given him and now God is saying I need you to go back home and so Laban gathers up, or Laban, Jacob gathers up all of his people, all of his family, all of his men, all of his livestock, and begins marching back home to what he, think is gonna, what he thinks is going to be a battle. Because Esau's been doing the same thing while he's been away. He has been growing a family. He's been living his life. And it turns out he has been doing some work as well. Because what we don't see in the story until we meet Esau again is, you know, Jacob thinks he's going to come back and see the same brother that he left. This rage-filled beat red brother with goat hairy arms and what he comes back to find is not a brother that wants to kill him but rather a brother who's ready to embrace in reconciliation 
it's really an incredible story where, where God is able to see this dream in a way that only God could, and Jacob simply has to take the faithful next steps and to trust that what he's returning to is not going to absolutely destroy him. It's a surprise in the most wonderful of ways. The story and the way it tells who God is and how God moves amongst God's people is so wonderfully surprising every step along the way. It's not about perfect people or perfect families or, or clean and pristine relationships. It's about mess and about brokenness and about sin and unfaithfulness and meanness and vindictiveness and revenge. And then in the end, it's about faithfulness and about love and about reconciliation. That's the way that God multiplies the family of Abraham. I wonder how might God surprise us yet again? Maybe the thought of having a dream, even a God-sized dream, sounds like too much a burden to bear for you. The, the good news is that we don't have to see everything or be responsible for the cosmos. What we can do is be faithful with the dream that God has placed in front of us and in our hearts today. I wonder, no matter the family we come from, no matter where God might be leading us, how might God be leading us to create families of our own of blessing upon this earth? big enough for the hunter and for the homebody, wide enough for the rage-filled and the reconciled, deep enough for the people that we have been and the people that we are becoming, for those who have come out and for those who wish to come home honest and true and worth our lifelong work. 